and welcome to the Surreal Politics Members Only Wednesday video chat for July 26, 2023 is the current year. Good to be with all of you today. And uh, let's go take a look in here and see. Uh, ready? Uh, guys are figuring out that I do the thing on time. They're actually starting to log in around the same time we start the show. This is pretty good. And so I, uh, I sent out this email before the show today, and I was kind of, I was a little bit rattled because, uh, well, I was rattled that I wasn't rattled is kind of what, what kind of got to me and, you know, riddled me that, right? Um, you know, it's, uh, it's been said that it's no measure of mental health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. You might have heard that said a couple of times, perhaps by me. Um, and as I sought inspiration for today's show, I realized that I was perhaps too well-adjusted to this profoundly sick society right here. There's, like, plenty going on in the news. Hunter Biden's plea deal just fell apart. And as a consequence of this, I realized I discovered something that I had not previously been fully aware of. Andy McCarthy on Fox News pointed out today that Hunter Biden has actually not been indicted. And thus, the statute of limitations is still ticking on his many crimes, including the ones he was about to plead guilty to today. At this point, I realize this is not a situation where Hunter Biden is, like, disappointed by the situation. This is a stall tactic coordinated between his defense and the Department of Justice. It also occurs to me that at a recent congressional hearing, which I, I I mentioned on a recent episode, the recent member chat, there was like this homosexual Democrat IRS agent who came in to testify in the Hunter Biden probe. And the Republicans are like, look, he's a homosexual Democrat. He's not on our side. He's obviously telling the truth because, you know, a homosexual Democrat is not, you know, against Hunter Biden. But I realized, OK, what's going on here? He's not so much a whistleblower as a player of the skin flute is actually what's going on. He was there not to sound the alarm on misconduct, but to brag about it is actually what I figured out is happening. He understands perfectly well that nothing's going to come of this. And more to the point, the best part about this for the Democrats is to let everybody know what they are getting away with, because, you know, if you commit crimes and get away with them and nobody knows how much fun is that right like if you commit crimes and everybody knows what you did and you're like yeah of course i committed the crime i did it on television everybody knows about it and you better not ever screw with me because i can get away with murder right that's kind of the purpose of the exercise the demonstration of their power is kind of the idea and so this is pretty outrageous but you know it it in the final analysis it's actually like the baseline expectation right this is routine now the Biden administration, the Biden family, can commit crimes in full view of the public, get caught, do it on television, basically all but confess to it, and just proceed like it never happened. That's that's normal now. And, you know, it, it, it has to be, right? Because if Antifa can, like, run riot in broad daylight and commit violent crimes and tell outrageous lies under oath in open court while contradicted by video in real time, like, there would actually be something very wrong with the world if people so powerful as the Bidens had less power than them, right? That's impossible. Like, how you know, the, uh, the, uh, the created can't be greater than the creator, right? And so this sort of thing has become mundane to me. It's like what I expect to happen. Consequently, after discovering this otherwise shocking outrage, 
I just muted the television again and went back to read the news online. I'm like, well, I guess I, I better find something newsworthy to talk about because Hunter Biden getting away with crimes is not actually that newsworthy. Fox News will talk about it all day long. Fox News will be like, oh, my God, well, let's talk to another lawyer. Let's talk to another lawyer about what he thinks about Hunter Biden getting away with crimes. What do you think about Hunter Biden getting away with crimes, lawyer? And they all say the same thing. They're like, oh, it's a two-tier justice system. This is very bad. This is why we need to vote Republican. And yeah, sure, that's, you know, that's true. There's truth to that, I should say. But it's not news, fundamentally. And so I was just like, yeah, I've, I've heard enough lawyers talk about the two-tier justice system. I'll go back to reading online. Revolver, as I'm doing this, Revolver links to a story about a man who has beaten two babies to death. He has already been transferred to a women's prison in California because, of course, he decided to become transgender after Gavin Newsom signed a gender identity policy making it possible for men to get shipped to female facilities simply for claiming to be non-binary. He is now awaiting breast implants, which will be provided to him at taxpayer expense in California. Jason Michael Hahn, who now goes by the pseudonym Jessica Marie Hahn, was sentenced to death for bashing open the skulls of his infant son and daughter. He is reported to have traveled with their corpses for some period of time before disposing them and threatened to murder his wife if she went to the police. He put his 10-week-old daughter, Montana's body, in a Tupperware container and left it in a trailer he owned, which was subsequently repossessed. The repossessed trailer was auctioned off, and the new owner discovered the remains approximately one year after Han had beaten her to death before her third month of life began. Since Mr. Han was the prior registered owner of the trailer, it did not take long for police to connect him to the murder. When Han and his wife, uh, when Han and his then wife, I should say, were caught, They had a one-year-old child in their custody on the brink of death. Had police arrived much later than that, there likely would have been three bodies to Mr. Han's name. During the subsequent investigation, a storage locker belonging to Mr. Han was searched, and there they found the remains of his six-week-old son, whose head he bashed open in 1989. And so if there was ever a reason to have a death penalty, surely Mr. Hahn is the epitome of that reason. But Gavin Newsom does not think there is any reason to put people like Mr. Hahn to death. And so he instituted a moratorium on executions before authorities could rid the world of Mr. Hahn's wickedness. Newsom also instituted a policy allowing male prisoners to be transferred to women's prisons simply for filling out a questionnaire that says they are not actually males. And I chose my words there very carefully. They do not have to say that they are women. They do not have to say they are female. They just have to say that they are gender nonconforming. And then they can be shipped to a women's prison and receive gender-affirming care like hormones and breast implants at taxpayer expense. Thus was born Jessica Marie Hahn. But of course, this too has become mundane, has it not? I am not, I'm just reciting the facts to you, and gruesome though they are, I'm not like fired up enough to provide you much in the way of original commentary, actually. This is just what happens in America today, and I'm not particularly shocked by it anymore. 
Another routine story appears in the form of an Emmy award-winning ABC reporter who was very upset by what he saw as the racism of Tucker Carlson. He pled guilty to possessing child pornography recently. No surprise there, of course, another left-winger possessing child porn. It hardly gets any more mundane than that today. But am I shocked to find, as Revolver is quick to call attention to, that he has the worst sort of child pornography? The kiddie porn in question includes the forcible rape of an infant. Am I shocked yet? Am I outraged? Shall the words flow through me in a fit of rage and send a shiver up your spine, maybe? No, I'm afraid the facts will have to do, because I am wholly unsurprised by this. Nor am I particularly shocked to hear that, despite facing a maximum of 40 years in prison, James Meek is uh, far more likely to do the federal mandatory minimum of just five years. So, if you tell somebody off on the internet, you get 41 months. If you show up to a process of the Capitol, you get, you know, 18 years. If you uh, possess pornography of people forcibly raping infants, you know, depending on how many, you know, pictures of, you know, infant rape you have, you know, you're going to be looking at maybe five years, buddy. (laughs) So what else is new, right? I mean, why, like, is that surprising? No, as a matter of fact, it's not. It's just, it's mundane. It's normal now. It's not normal. I shouldn't say that, but. You know, this is what they said all through 2020, the new normal, the new normal, the new normal. Get used to it, guys. You know, we, this is this is what's going to be happening from now on. And you better just learn to suck it up, Buttercup, because that's what we're going to stick down your throats. I was mildly amused to discover that Frank Luntz is in a state of fear. This brings a smile to my face because Frank Luntz is a thoroughly detestable man. He posts a Twitter video. Uh, styled as a Donald Trump campaign ad in which an actor says, if I was the deep state, I would, and rattles off a bunch of things which one might argue have already happened. Such as stealing the election and putting a doddering old corrupt fool like Joe Biden into the White House because he is incapable of and unwilling to do anything to help his country. The video implies that COVID-19 was a false flag and makes a number of outrageous claims which are not entirely proven, then flashes a Trump 2024 campaign logo as if that is going to solve the problem. Luntz calls this a campaign ad and says it makes him afraid. Jonah Goldberg agrees wholeheartedly. I am unmoved other than in my amusement at their expense, though. What could possibly go wrong with the president making such claims? Well, you know, plenty, actually. Did the president actually make those claims? Well, you know, be honest with you, I didn't bother to check. <laughs> like, why, why would I bother to check? It's believable that Trump would, so whether or not he actually made them is actually kind of besides the point, if you think about it. Donald Trump might be president in 2025. 2025, I should have probably said that. 2020, 2025, something like that. Uh, The year that I'm referencing is 2025. It's not centuries into the future. And I see no reason to question whether he is publicly calling COVID a false flag and issuing videos which could be deemed a call to arms. Such is the state of our politics. I mean, it's just baseline expectation. Again, it seems we have reached a stage in America's decline that might be described as routine lunacy. One in which it makes little sense to get one's heart up about uh, heart rate up about anything in particular. 
To even attempt this proves impossible after some extended period of time. <coughs> In cognitive behavioral therapy, for people with phobias and other disorders, psychologists will expose patients to stimuli that trigger the disordered behavior in the patient. The patient is then observed and instructed not to engage in the disordered behavior normally triggered by the event. This causes the patient a great deal of anxiety, sometimes reaching a state that might be described as a panic attack. And still, the behavioral therapist insists the patient refrain from the disordered behavior while continuing the stimuli. And it is no, um, and after some period of time, the disordered behavior just ceases to be an issue because the body is simply incapable of maintaining stress levels like this for very long. Okay, like continue the stimuli, deny relief, and eventually the patient just gets used to the stimuli. And that is the case with everything. All right, you go do some time in prison, like you're you're like stuck in a county jail, and you're like, oh my god, I got you know, you're freaking out, and then you know, eventually the anxiety about it just goes away, and you're like, okay, I guess this is my life now, right? The same thing with everything else in your life, and it is no different in politics. We are exposed to the corruption and depravity in our society, not so much because the monsters who govern us are clumsy and have lost their capacity to keep secrets, though one assumes this plays some role, but rather because they actually want us to see it. That's actually the purpose of the exercise. They want us to get used to it. They want us to accept it. And I am not going to say that I have accepted it. That would sort of defeat the entire purpose of our enterprise here. But I have most certainly gotten used to it. My heart rate is not elevated as I read about the repeat baby bludgeoner having his sex fetish subsidized by the state of California, nor the light sentence for the Emmy award-winning journalist who gets off on watching baby rape videos, or the brazen criminality of the president's son, or the civil war being provoked by Donald Trump, because really the wildest thing I see these days are women aspiring to motherhood and men declining the temptations of pornography. I suppose this feeds into what I was saying about uh, beauty a couple of weeks back. You know, one's frame of reference, the things one becomes accustomed to, the changes to one's perception that come with deprivation. And it was my intent to elaborate on this further in writing before the show today. And then a whole bunch of things came up and I was not able to do that. But I will just sort of riff on this and say, you know, it is kind of the same concept, right? Like if you if you watch this stuff every day, eventually you become desensitized to it. And eventually it's like, okay, you know, what am I I'm getting you don't have the option of getting excited about it anymore. It is something that your body is physically incapable of doing because you can't maintain stress levels for that long. It's just impossible to do. And so, you know, no wonder people punch out of politics, right? Like people are like most people if you talk to them about what's going on, I think um, they're like, I don't want to know, right? You go talk to people about politics. They're like, don't bother me about politics. I don't want anything to do with it. Yeah. Because, like, it's just going to upset them, right? And other people are like, you know, they either don't know what's going on because they consume a particular news source or whatever, or they are, you know, they're fanatics who are indulged in some whack job ideology. But you can't, you can't keep them on the edge of their seat for too long, you know, Excitement just don't work that way, right? The same thing I said about pornography, right? Like when I was, before I went to prison, like I viewed pornography all the time and I thought like nothing of it. I, I didn't, I was like, what? Like, 
whatever. Okay, you know, they shouldn't be, uh, you know, tempting those women into doing that stuff, but it's not bothering me any, you know. And I don't watch it for a few years, and I look at it, and I'm like, whoa, you know. People get desensitized to things, and that's uh, that seems to be what's going on, and that's, uh, that's not good, I don't think, but it's to be expected. Anybody else want to chime in? Uh, yeah, Chris, actually, you know, um, you mentioned this idea that um, the, the more people um, get used to something or the more they're exposed to it, the more they get used to it. I, I think this reminds me of a, a little bit about psychology. Last time I was talking about um, uh, MBTI, the personality type stuff. And, you know, I, I pay attention a lot to how, you know, this affects politics like, um, you know, like sensor versus intuitor or thinker versus feeler. And 80% of people have sensor personalities, which tends to mean they don't really think too deeply about things unless it's part of their life, um, directly part of their life. And I think that for those people, you know, you do get this sort of thing where it's like, um, they have this normalcy bias, whatever they're exposed to, um, whatever's normal, um, and that uh, they think is good, so much so that if you say something is normal, people assume that that's synonymous with you saying that it's good, when in reality, um, now intuitors are a little bit different. There are intuitor thinkers and there are intuitor feelers. I'm an intuitor thinker. And, you know, sometimes the intuitor feelers, well, intuitors, regardless of whether they're thinkers or feelers, they like complicated ideas. They don't like to be constrained to the mundane or to what they experience in everyday life. But I've noticed that um, it's like a lot of the um, leftists have NF personalities, intuitor feeler. So intuitor means you like to collect a lot of information and feeler means that emotions are more important to you than logic. So they'll come up with increasingly complicated ideas and abstract ideas that have no basis in reality. As for me, I'm an intuitor thinker, so I like complicated ideas, but I also like them to be based in reality, and I don't have much interest in appeals to emotion. Well, I think um, I'm... Yeah, I think that... Uh, I don't know how to respond to your point precisely, but... These personality types that you're describing to me, I think, sort of broadly match up with the phenomenon described that, like, people are not—I um, don't think that most people are thinking about things most of the time. And I don't think that they're supposed to, by the way. I don't think that's, like, a malfunction on their part, you know. They, they, it's impossible for them to process all the information involved in politics. It's an unreasonable expectation to suggest that they should— and so, you know, you hear this every four years that, you know, people vote for the candidate that they would like to have a beer with or something, I think, is an approximation of what you're saying about the what, what did you say? Sense sensor as versus sensor. Yeah, it's like the sensor. They can they, they don't like a whole lot of information. And then the intuitor, they like to have lots of complicated information. You know, I, I think on one hand, we have to deal with what we have now. Um, on, on the other hand, I think that the the nature of politics is of course based on the gene pool so if we ever do come to power hopefully we can start pushing the gene pool in a different direction let's say 
you know, if you sterilized the people, the 10% with the lowest IQ and tell the highest IQ 10% to start popping out babies like crazy, you know, you might eventually be able to get beyond the point where, you know, politics is just based on, you know, oh, I like him, he likes sports, and I like sports. You know, I, I don't know that like I would that. endorse, like, I, I don't know that I would endorse an IQ-based policy like you're discussing. I mean, have you ever read Brave New World? Um, I don't know. It was by Huxley. I forget yeah. which one of the Huxley brothers it's by. Yeah, Aldous Huxley. And so, like, you know, kind of the theme in that in that book is that, you know, people are no longer— um, they, they people don't reproduce the way they reproduce now. It's not sexual reproduction. They're they're created in test tubes essentially, and you have the the alphas, the betas, the epsilons, the deltas, whatever the alphabet soup of it is. And the alphas are like you know the top notch people. They're physically fit and they're geniuses or whatever. And then you know the epsilons, the gammas, whatever are the are the retards. And somebody asked the question, like, why don't we just have all alphas? Like, why why are we creating all these dumb fat people? And it is explained that they actually attempted to do this at one point, that they, they, they created essentially um, the alpha society. They basically had all these alphas go live on an island. And the alphas, uh, you know, didn't want to do the mundane work that was required for civilization to work. And they all said, well, you go do it. And all of them said, well, you go do it. And then they ended up killing each other and destroyed the civilization. So, like, I think that you need a certain, uh, you know, part of the reason European societies are successful is because there's like that broad IQ range. It's not like, you know, you like you see this sort of emerge. You know, and people in our circles like to attack this theme of the uh, the the high IQ Ashkenazi Jew or whatever. But like, it makes sense if you think about it that like. You know they don't want to be involved in manual labor, and they're and they're and they have higher IQs, and thus they, you know, sort of like gravitate towards certain positions or whatever. Whereas in European societies, you have like this wide IQ distribution, so you have manual laborers, you have leaders, you have you know, sort of like middle management backstop people, and it all sort of works out, right? And you think about you think about IQ along gender lines, and you or sex lines, I should say, because all of a sudden there's a difference between those two things. You know, and like women are sort of like grouped towards the center of IQ, generally speaking, and it makes sense. Okay, you've got men are, you know, out at the tails and you've got, you know, lots and lots of, you know, people who are basically, you know, good for manual labor or whatever. And then you have, you know, a, a smaller number of like leadership class people. And then you have women who kind of like need to be, you know, capable people, but they don't necessarily need to be super high IQ people. Why? Because they're like they're 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 you know, their, their support staff or whatever, right? They're, they're the, they're the family, you know, taker, they're the family caretaker, right? They got to take care of the children. So they can't be, it's not good for them to be completely incapable of doing anything complex, but they don't necessarily like need to lead an army into battle or, or to, you know, develop a cancer treatment. And so, you know, it sort of works out that you have this IQ distribution. And so I would be cautious of like IQ based eugenics programs, I would say, but you know, I guess. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think it needs to be IQ plus other personality traits, because if we have something where it's just based on IQ and then we have people with, you know, terribly evil personalities and then they have high IQs, well, then we're going to get the same thing we have now. Well, yeah. Um, and then those people the are going to and then those people are going to stop 
you know, and then they're going to stop the eugenics program altogether and and actually like institute a, a dysgenics program through econ- through economic and immigration policy. Right. Because they the, those wicked elites, they benefit from, you know, having a a lower class to 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 eat away at their competition. Right. To knock the rungs out of the ladder of the middle class. Right. And I, I think on the issue of manual labor, I'm not sure how much longer that will be even an issue because I see automation coming out. And, you know, I think one good thing, if you're against third world immigration, we may want to welcome this automation because we're going to say, OK, well, the, the, the excuse for all that immigration was you know, you need people who can do really mundane tasks because the high IQ people don't want to do it. Well, now we got a robot picking the the fruits and vegetables. So it's like, why do we need all those people from Latin America or whatever? Well, well that's that's actually already the case. Um, and so, like, you know, they'll make up another excuse at that point, right? That's That's part of what the whole human rights nonsense is, right? They're like, oh, well, you know, you, obviously, you don't buy the bit about picking the fruit anymore, so we're just going to call you a Nazi, you know, and 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 beat you up in the street because because our our stupid you know watermelon picker story doesn't doesn't hold up to scrutiny, and so you know they'll find some other excuse. But obviously, yeah, I mean, you know, it 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 increases the cognitive burden of the deception in any case to uh, to to lose these to lose these narratives. I don't know. I mean, it something tells me. That there's always going to be something that, you know, high IQ people don't want to do that lower IQ people can. And, the you know, the idea behind that for if anybody I, I imagine you probably know this, but I don't know that everybody does. Just so people who are not up to speed on that conversation do that, like, you know, like there was a there was a story. The libertarians used to make fun of this, that some police departments would not hire cops if they had an IQ over a certain level. And when asked why that was, they were like, well, most of a cop's job is basically like sitting around doing nothing. And if they and people with high IQs get very bored doing that. And and that's not that's not conducive to the profession or whatever. You know, somebody who is, you know, somebody who is, you know, people find their own level, say, OK. And I don't I, I, I don't like discussing IQ in, in a fashion that makes it out like it is the that that's a standard of value in figuring out how much a person is worth because i have a I have a good deal of evidence that that's not the case and so like you know i i don't think that it is axiomatically better for society to try to you know to do away with the people who are not uh who are not super high iq or whatever because on top of the fact that they do jobs that are mundane and high IQ people don't want to do like, like they generally, I I think that absent corrupting influences, people's people of European ancestry who are not necessarily high IQ have basically like a, a a generally good disposition towards their fellow man. Okay. They're like, they're not, they're not overthinking things and making things so complex as to get to a point where, you know, they're they're making judgments about the the value. They're making negative judgments about the value of their neighbors' lives or something like that. Um, and so, you know, that's uh, that's my thought on it. Right. I mean, I, I remember last time you, you said um, we we plan to become the power structure, and then eventually we will lose that power. And 
it will go to somebody else. Um, you know, I mean, I just think that, you know, there's not a whole lot of point in us, you know, going through all this trouble just to, you know, build something that lasts a few hundred years. Um, you know, I think that it may be better if we start to think, how can we make something uh, that lasts for thousands of years? You know what I'm saying? Well, that's that's certainly the goal, right? I mean, the, the idea is to try to make the thing last as long as possible, no doubt. I mean, if I could plan for eternity, I would. It just turns out that I have trouble figuring out what's going to happen tomorrow. And so, like, you know, my my study of the, you know, societal organism seems to suggest that people who are in power and find themselves comfortable as a consequence of that end up making mistakes over the long term which is how other people come to power. And that is good news for us at present because it, it appears that that's exactly what's happening, you know, with the other side. And so, you know, as they as they are disconnected from the people whose support they require in order to govern, like they're making errors in judgment, which help us advance at the expense of our rivals. And so, like, that's that's a positive observation in this instance. Now, it, it it's arguable that, if we teach the next generation, hey, this is like what happened and you can't make this mistake, you know, per perhaps it is the case that we can prevent that from happening. But something tells me that there's there's an argument. I would say that there's an argument to be made that th that that's not the most likely of outcomes. And by the way, like it's not necessarily the case that. You know, when I say we, you know, we're all gone by the time 500 years has passed, presumably. You know, if we figure out a way to live for 500 years, then, you know, then, then the timeline is substantially expanded, say. But, you know, if, if you're somebody who is like, if you are born into the comfort and you're like, oh, like, you know, what did my parents do? And, you know, like, I think that there's a certain natural tendency and maybe it, maybe my frame of reference is off just because I've been, you know, immersed in this world for so long but i think that there's there there prevails today a tendency i don't know how natural it is that today there prevails a tendency for people to look at for kids to look at their parents as like you know hey like why aren't you innovating or whatever and and so the expectation that i would have is that at some point in the future there would be a generation of people who would say like okay you guys did this and fine, you know, it's been producing the outcomes that we have. But the nature of the human psyche is such that people tend to be dissatisfied with whatever is. And so they tend to try to innovate. And if the and if the way to keep the order is to do the same thing, there's a tendency not to do that. And so that will cause them to try to innovate. And when they try to innovate, they will upset the people whom they are disconnected from because they are they're walled off as a consequence of their their elite status and so that will cause right. them to make well, errors. I, I do think that you know in um in modern times or in slightly 10 years from now or whatever we will be dealing with a different type of a, a way more technologically advanced society um you know and one of the things is that dynasties often collapsed in the past um, because, you know, uh, genetics was a rather random thing, you know, combine that with inbreeding depression and all of a sudden the whole 
thing, you look at Charles II, one of the most mentally retarded people who ever lived, and he inherited the Habsburg Empire, which largely caused it to fall apart, you know, but um, uh, not, I'm not saying that people should inbreed, but what I'm saying is, you know, I think there's this idea that the the government would get disconnected from the people. It's like, well, yeah, but there have also been times in human history when the government, the people in the government have either totally or at least partially taken over the gene pool um, in the sense that I, I think I heard that uh, with the British, um, some of the people who were the ruling classes who made up a very small percent of the population, let's say 500 or 1,000 years ago, now have their genes at a significant percentage of the British population. Um, so, I mean, I think that just like the, uh, if I were to sum it up in a very short way, I would say that whatever rules we've, we've come up with for how things work and how they're sustainable, um, you know, those rules are going to be thrown out the window with new technology. And I think there's also the danger that even if you don't want to use this technology, somebody else will. And eventually, if they succeed, you'll be living under their boot, so to speak. I, I think that the I think that the idea that the that the rules go out the window with technology is the is is precisely the perception that causes the phenomenon that I'm describing. Like there's there are actually hard-coded rules for mankind and people get the idea that they are above those rules they try to break them and they break themselves upon them right and, and i understand that sort of perception i'm a you know technology buff myself and so i understand how people could get that idea in their head to be certain but it it seems to me that that um that that eventually uh, that that the de the delusional nature of that thought process eventually um, becomes evident in the failures of the of the people who pursue it. Right? Let's just say, like, you know, I, I had a little bit of trouble keeping track of your the the gene pool thing that you're describing, but like, you know, the gene pool ultimately is, you know, a uh, a thing that's going to impact your your civilization. The idea that you can exercise intelligent control over that is not completely preposterous but i would say that there are some meaningful limits on it and i and i and i'm not certain that i'm not certain that there's going to come a time when the technology of genetics is quite so well understood as the people tinkering with it would like to tell themselves right and so right. yeah well yeah. of course of course uh, a poorly done eugenics program could always backfire i think that's what you're talking about yeah. with the inbreeding right like this is a poorly done eugenics program that like you know royal families are like okay go screw your sister now right like they're like oh well if we if we breed you know with each other then you know we'll we'll keep all our traits within the family or whatever this is a eugenics program gone wrong when you end up with mad men and retards in charge of the country as a consequence of, you know, inbreeding. And so, you know, that seems to right. be a, Although an I ancient that, example I think that of if it. They had, if they had outbred a bit more, if they had accepted just a few outsiders into their family, they, they could have easily, you know, circumvented that. 
Well, and then and then you have them go and accept major outsiders, right? The king is like, "Hey, that black girl's pretty cute," right? And then he has, and then and then he has, uh, right. and and then he and then he degrades his gene pool um, through uh, through 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 you know some kind of uh, novelty fetish, say. And so, like, you know, I would say, you know, it's impossible for us to predict what's going to happen in five hundred thousand years. I mean, you know, all I know tomorrow is that the Bidens are going to commit a crime and get away from it, and and some pedophile is going to get off with a life sentence. That's all I can predict about tomorrow. Um, and so, I don't know what's going to happen in five hundred years. Clearly, but you know, obviously, the goal would be to, you know, to take power and then to, you know, transmit the wisdom that's necessary for its maintenance to to the people who are. Who come later? Now, you know, you talk about you know technology changing things. I think that technology has had the effect of it, it polluting the information environment more than aiding its advancement, right? So, like, maybe there's a potential that we could change that, say, but I don't think there's anything guaranteed about that. Like, more information, like the idea, oh, the answer to bad speech is more speech. Like, I don't believe that at all. I think that's crazy, right? Well, like. You know, I think it's interesting. The libertarians make this argument that, you know, um, if we had a free marketplace of ideas, that the best ideas would rise to the top. Well, I think if you had a different gene pool, that might actually be true. You know, if you had and I'm not just talking about IQ, but, you know, you could take all your favorite people, your favorite activists in the alt right movement and try to sequence their genes and, you know, figure out what is it I like about these people, you know? So it's, it's not, it doesn't have to all be based on IQ. Well, that's true. I mean, there are other traits that you can breed for, right? Like, um, I, I don't remember the precise details about it. Charles Murray went on about this at some length in human diversity, where he talked about like, um, there was like a Soviet scientist who was breeding foxes and, and he wanted to breed these foxes to, you know, to be tame or whatever. And I mean, he did it very quickly. I mean, within the course of like, you know, a fox's lifespan, I don't know exactly what it is, but, you know, a couple generations of foxes, he, he had like the entire lot of his um, foxes were, you know, were, were they could be handled like pets or whatever. OK. And all he was doing was selecting the ones who had that disposition. Right. And and he managed to do that very quickly. And so, you know. Those dispositions are, you know, they have genetic origins, say. Um, and so you can do that for traits other than intelligence, I would say, you know, with, with some reliability. Right. Well, maybe, maybe you're against enhancement on the positive end, but would you at least concede that there might be some people we might want to sterilize because we don't want to have too many of them? Yeah, no, like absolutely, right? So, you know, I, I would go so far as to say that anybody who is— Anybody who has the easy the easy answer to that is anybody who has a sexual predisposition towards prepubescent children is wired wrong. Blow their brains out. Right. Forget about castrating them. Just take them out in the parking lot and shoot them because there's nothing that you're going to do for that guy. Like that's a you know, that's a that's a sexual orientation. Right. Like that's why the Democrats have this whole minor attracted persons thing is they're like they're actually correct about what they're saying, that this is their sexual orientation. And, you know, and and they're making a value judgment that I disagree with, obviously. But, you know, they're saying, like, these people can't help it. And it's like, well, exactly. They can't help it. So why are you going to let them out of prison in five years? Right. You know, either keep them there forever or kill them. 
but like don't don't go put them back into the playground, you lunatic, you know. And so, you know, people who exhibit traits such as that that we that we can all agree are, you know, we want to eradicate from society, then yeah, you know, just you know, do whatever you have to do to remove those people from the gene pool, do it. You know, whether you're sterilizing them or killing them, it's fine. Um, or putting them in prison forever if people like that better. You know, just as long as they're not breeding, great. You know, and so I, I think that there's definitely that. Uh, I think that there. I think that anybody who's going to try to approach the responsibility of a eugenics program should be skeptical of their own wisdom. Say that, like, you shouldn't approach it as I'm actually intelligent enough to figure this out. You, you know, I, I that's a that's a very awesome responsibility, and I think that wise leaders would be skeptical of their own wisdom, and so you would probably want to keep that to you know uh, an absolute. You you would want to. You would only want to act on that in cases where you could act with a very, very high level of certainty, such as in the case that, you know, okay, this person has a predisposition towards molesting children. We do not want to perpetuate that into the future. We're getting rid of it, you know. And I would say that, you know, there's there's um, other traits that are very easily identifiable through genetic grouping that you would perhaps want to eliminate from a society. And I'll I'll ask that people just draw their inferences on that. And don't make me elaborate on it a great deal, but like, yeah, like you you would want to you would want to remove from the gene pool entire categories of people who who you could identify as problematic, say. But I don't think that you would want to go and take like your group. You know, you don't you you want to be very cautious, not only because of the actual consequences of the of the eugenics program itself, but but because like you know, the, the way people will react to it, right? On a prior discussion about this, I think you brought up, you know, women's emotional reaction to things. And I, and I said, like, you know, a woman's emotional reaction to things is actually, you know, worth taking into consideration. And, and it'll actually help you come to better conclusions by, by taking it seriously, right? Because, you know, intelligence is very useful, obviously. And, but I would say that, intelligence has one of the one of the pitfalls of intelligence is you can you can think yourself into bad situations where you think you're you think you're intelligent enough to overcome any challenge and and you are proven wrong by the physics of the situation after it's too late whereas like an emotional intuition is like that's wrong like you know you might be you might be told like you're going to go do something you say well that's wrong i'm going to hurt somebody by doing this and the emotional intuition is you should not engage in that behavior and you say like well my logical mind tells me that it's i can accomplish a more important goal than my own emotional satisfaction by doing this unpleasant thing so i'm going to go ahead and do it anyway and in a lot of cases that is actually going to turn out to be the case that you'll accomplish a worthwhile goal by getting over the emotional uh, over the emotional hurdle but you know you should i i think that one should stop and think about those things, you know, pretty strongly and not 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 just jump over the emotional hurdle recklessly. And, you know, I think women are useful for that if if for no other reason that your wife is like, what are you doing, maniac? Like she checks you on your like, you know, she 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 checks you on things and is like, don't don't be terrible. Don't be an awful person, you know that's like actually like a valuable signal right and so if you if you're if you're engaging in a program that you know is going to if if you engage in a program that's going to upset your women say you know it's it's worth considering the 
it's worth considering the consequences of that beyond the um, beyond the obvious, you know, beyond the obvious logical consequences and, and say, why am I upsetting my women? Does that mean I'm doing something wrong? Okay, well, that's pretty much all I had to say. I'll let some other people talk now. Yes, uh, thank you. Anybody, who else uh, wants to chime in? Uh, am I coming in? I hear you. I hear you fine. Go ahead. Hi. So I just want to touch real quick because the previous caller was talking about IQ and what it pertains to immigration. And I would say that's actually a pretty bad case to make for immigration because there's a lot of uh, human biodiversity out there and there are a lot of high IQ people. I'll point to Canada as an example. Uh, Eric Kaufman covered this in his book, White Shift. He talked about how Canada brings in a lot of high IQ people from Asia, a lot of Chinese and Indians. And as a result of this, there's actually less resistance to immigration because they're not bringing in crime. They're not on welfare. They are working jobs. They're actually working high paid jobs in healthcare and finance and high skilled labor, essentially. And as a result of this, the demographic shift will happen in Canada before it happens in the United States, where white people will be a minority in Canada first, will be the first Western country. And this is really is the result of their immigration policy, where it's literally more nefarious with legal immigration because essentially they have bought up, uh, I think it's like Vancouver. A lot of Chinese went there, bought up a lot of property. They kind of essentially just live on their own in their own area. They work these high paying jobs. They're not really bothering people with crime. So there's less of a, an urgency compared to what happens in America. A lot of people south of the border, it's not just people coming in across. There's also drugs and there's also a criminal element that are coming in illegally. So it does cause a lot more concern for America. And I think if we went the route of high IQ immigration, I think that people would be less concerned about immigration until it's too late. I'm wondering what you think. So um, the idea, I think that it's, I think that having IQ based immigration is a dangerous idea too. You, you don't want to, it, it's no more beneficial to replace your elites than it is to replace your working class, say. As a matter of fact, it, it's arguably more dangerous, right? And so, you know, if you bring in, if you bring in people uh, uh, to displace your working class in such numbers that they start, you know, driving down wages and stuff, and kicking out rungs of the, of the ladder to, um, kicking out rungs of the ladder to upward mobility, there's obvious problems with that, one of which is they'll have a revolution and they'll violently overthrow the elites. Well, you know, who's going to tell them to do that but foreign elites who you are now letting in through through, through high IQ immigration? And so um, it, it's obviously we, we have that problem. That, that problem is evident in the United States today. Yeah, and a lot of people... They look at places like India, right? So on average, India has a lower IQ than like Nigeria. But obviously, India is much more developed economically than Nigeria because there's like a lot of diversity. If you ever look at 
uh, Bollywood, you would see the actors and actresses in Bollywood don't look like the average Indian <laughs> at all. Like the uh, this one acting family, the Kapoor family, they all have blue eyes. And they essentially all have blue eyes because of arranged marriages to make sure they all have blue eyes to be actors in Bollywood. So there's a lot of uh, high IQ Indians, that, despite what you see on paper, what the average IQ of India is. And it's actually a big problem for America because they are taking over a lot of CEO positions, especially a lot of tech jobs. I think that Microsoft guys, uh, the CEO of Microsoft's Indian. Google has a lot of top executives that are Indian as well. And they are taking slowly taking over the Republican Party, too. Well, yeah. If you if you go if you go to like if you go to a doctor if you go to a hospital in New York, you're you're likely going to have an Indian doctor. Um, if you, um, as you say, you know they're they're prolific in the tech field, um, and you know my understanding of India is that you know they have like a caste system, right? There's you know they they are they they are conscious of their genetic separation between classes of people within the society right and i'm not sure that it's um i i don't believe that it's limited to bollywood but all bollywood is probably you know among the elites of the civilization so that's your your upper caste of the racial hierarchy say uh, i don't know it's racial is probably the wrong word but you know the the within the the group the the group within the group the ethnic class difference say Yeah, it is a pretty complicated caste system that goes by like ethnic group, and then within the ethnic group they have different levels of caste, and the different families they have literally will do arranged marriages. Like I was mentioning the Kapoor family, where they have arranged marriages to make sure everybody has blue eyes so they can be in Bollywood. So it, it really does vary by family. It's kind of interesting in a way. Yeah, it uh, that is interesting. I, I mean, I um. Do you know that they are, you know, are, is it your understanding that they, they are doing this with eye color specifically in mind, or is eye color the phenomenon that occurs with the tr with the trait that they are trying to reproduce, which is, you know, capacity? Well, I believe it's, they're looking for, the, like, the most attractive people to marry into. I haven't. I just looked into it briefly about the Kapoor family, like uh, Karishma Kapoor, Karina Kapoor, the two most famous actors. It, it's just a well-known thing. They just try to make the most beautiful actors and actresses. They, they're very particular on who they arrange marriage in the family with. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. <clears throat> yeah, it's, it, it, it jives with my understanding of how India works, you know, I, and I haven't researched the subject at great length. I've always understood that they have a caste system. Um, I read, I actually read Vivek Ramaswamy's book, um, not Nation of Victims, the other one, Woke Inc., uh, when I didn't have internet access. And so I, uh, he talked about that, like, he came from this, you know, caste system, and he, he equated this to his, you know, understanding of race in America, which was sort of, sort of an amusing anecdotal response to it, because... You know, he's he's actually taking sort of an anti-racist position. He's like, yeah, I came from the top cast, and, you know, that's wrong or whatever. And, you know, 
no, you don't. You actually didn't think that. You certainly didn't believe it then. You're you're certainly not going to India and trying to overturn it, right? You're you're coming to uh, you're coming to America with a with a very serious understanding of genetic separation and 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 parroting colorblind conservative nonsense. Well, India is a very dysfunctional country. It is very multi-ethnic, and yeah, it's even multiracial. There's a lot of corruption, a lot of inequality, like. Mumbai, if you see Slum Dog Millionaire, you think, oh, they all live in slums. But there's like parts of Mumbai that look like Manhattan, look like a first world country, where it's right next to it. You have people living in a third world country where there's no one in water, there's no toilets. Well, I, I, a lot of people choose not to use toilets, but in the wealthier areas, it's it's different. Right. Yeah, I uh, that's what I understand it to be, and so, you know, you definitely uh, I I think you you brought it here as the idea of you know IQ based immigration. I agree with you there. You know, if you if you bring India to the United States, then the United States will be India, and if you base that on some kind of like misguided eugenical notion, then you know then you're going to be in for some trouble, right? Yeah, and Indians have no problem with inequality, so they're perfectly fine if. The rest of the country lives in abject poverty. If they have their own walled community where they have their own shopping centers, they have grocery stores, essentially everything they need, and then they get a pool from like the team and masses living in corrugated steel buildings to work for them, they're perfectly fine with that that type of society. Well, but I'm sure most Americans don't want to live like that. Yeah, I'm sure most Americans don't. And, you know, there's ups and downs to that, say, you know, I, I think that um, there's a statesman in Europe in the 1930s who sort of had the right idea that, you know, you have to you have to accept that sort of like, you know, these 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 class separations exist and they're not entirely inappropriate. But like y you have to have the capacity for people who who prove capable of having the upward mobility, right? Like they have to be able to break out of their class if they're if they're actually deserving of it. And especially in the case of European peoples, given what we know about IQ distribution, that's actually a very reasonable and prudent thing to do. That like you don't say you don't say, okay, well, because you were born into this class of people, there shall you remain. Like there has to be a merit-based system for them to move up the class hierarchy, you know? And I think that that's, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to go and get into a thing about capitalism. But, you know, whatever your way of organizing your society, it, it has to take that into account. And whether you do that through, you know, market acquisition of monetarily valuable resources or you have other qualities that you want to try to promote, whatever they are, you know. People need to be able to move up the class hierarchy as a consequence of um, more than <clears throat> who their parents are, I'd say. Well, thank you for taking the call. Thank you, thank you very much. Who else wants to chime in? Anybody, anybody, anybody? Hey, Chris, can you hear me? I can. Uh, yeah, I've got something to add about your um, about the story about the Russian scientists breeding the foxes. Yeah. So what I recall from that is that although he was selecting for gentleness, 
Uh, and, and that's how that was the main cr criteria that he used to breed these foxes. He found that other traits came along with that and that uh, the floppy ears, uh, the wagging of the tail and that sort of thing came along as he selected for gentleness. And uh, so, uh, you know, that's kind of interesting. And that may uh, dovetail into the last what the last gentleman was talking about in India, where they, they want uh, light skin and blue eyes. And, and maybe that uh, is uh, a byproduct. <laughs> You wonder if you're selecting for intelligence, and then it, it seems like a lot of these leaders of these third world countries tend to have lighter skin and fair complexion, blue eyes, and that sort of thing. Does that get drug along with the intelligence? I don't know. I, I think that that's a very astute observation that you're making, and I remember that, as I recall, uh, you're causing me to recall details about the story with the foxes, right? So he's trying to just create tamer foxes, and he ends up with these foxes that are tamer and have this common set of qualities, say, right? And, and so, like, all right, you're if you are trying to create, if you're trying to organize, if you're trying to intelligently guide human genetics, you know, whatever it, whatever trait you're trying to select for, you're probably going to be selecting also for for traits that you you had not intended to select for, right? And yeah. I think that that's that's a very astute observation. It's part of the reason that you one should be you know skeptical of their own wisdom in these sort of pursuits. <clears throat> not to not to say that you know um, that I think uh, a, a whole lot of terrible things come along with uh, intelligence axiomatically, but like I I I, I got to find the thing. Like I, I read this thing years ago that I've I've mentioned this so many times. It was in Cracked Magazine, and like. It was this thing like, you know, 10, 20, whatever the number was, ways that being smart is likely to get you killed or something, right? And so, you know, among these things are you're, you're actually more likely to get taken advantage of by a con artist because, you know, if you're, if you're somebody who's like of average intelligence and somebody tells you, hey, you know, you can accomplish this really great thing, just follow my instructions— you say to yourself, like, no, as a matter of fact, that's not going to happen for me because my baseline expectations of my of my outcomes are lower, whereas the, the intelligent person may may overestimate their intelligence and say, like, oh, well, I'm so routinely used to being smarter than everybody. Of course, I would be able to accomplish these things that other people can't accomplish. And then you get you you find yourself in jam as a consequence. Um, and and so, like, you, you know, there's I think there's. <clears throat> I don't. I don't know. I don't have a a Bible quote about it or anything. But like, Jordan Peterson talks about the idea that um, you know, like, sort of like falling in love with the creations of your mind is like a Luciferian quality, say. And I think that there's a there there's some merit to that. You know that that if you're if you think that you can think your way, if you think you can think your way out of nature, say, nature's going to remind you that you're wrong. You know, and there's probably a lot of different things that, you know, sort of fall under that categorically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I've got, uh, if it's all right, uh, and uh, I've got a totally off topic Do it. Uh, yeah. thing to, to bring up. Uh, so uh, Michael Malice, yeah. uh, he interviewed you um, after Charlottesville for his book, uh, The New Right. Yep. Um, did, did you have a chance to read that chapter that uh, you were in? And what did you think about his book, uh, how, his treatment of you 
specifically in the book overall and um, just your interactions with um, Malice. I read the whole book cover to cover, and I actually, um, subsequent to this, I published a very lengthy bit where I actually published the in- I published the interview in whole, and oh. and in ad- and as the forward to that, I think I wrote, I want to say something to the tune of thirteen thousand words, sort of introducing what I was about to discuss or introducing the interview. I think I wrote I, I prepared something to the tune of thirteen thousand words or something. And I read that aloud on the recording, which preceded the recording of the interview. And um, I don't know the exact word count or whatever, but it was substantial. And so I, uh, I, I thought that Malice did right by me. Um, I, I thought he did a good job, actually. I, I was, uh, and I discussed this with him at some length. You know, he, he, you know, me and him used to hang out. I, I don't know how much. I, I can't remember how much of that was conveyed in the text. I, I, I think it is understood to the reader. But, like, we used to hang out, you know. And uh, so, like, when he found out that, you know, I had become sort of like this notorious anti-Semite, he's like, oh, you know, I'm Jewish. Can we talk? And I'm like, yeah, we could talk, dude. Well, yeah, you know. And and so uh, and it was funny. Like, I think it was actually Dave Smith put me in touch with him <laughs> on top of it, you know. And he, he thought that I was going to be mean to him because he was Jewish or something. And I'm like, no, you know. You know, we're cool, man. You know, I, I keep one of the first question he asked me on the recording. He's like, do you want me dead? And I'm like, no, like, you know, the the idea that I'm discussing is that I think that my life would be better if I if I didn't have to share a system of government with different ethnic groups. And so, like, you're you're sort of caught up in this categorical phenomenon. But, like, I don't have a pr- personal problem with you, you know, and, you know, that that sort of took the. I would say took a lot of the tension out of the conversation and we had a pretty nice talk. I, I don't mind making that available to um, to the people who are members of this site. I don't want to publish it on the site because it, it contains things that that I that I don't want on on surrealpolitics.com. But any of you who are members, you know, contact me in some other way and I will I will get you that recording if you care to uh, care to listen to it. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you could, uh, I'll, yeah, you I'll, could I'll follow up with you. I have your contact information. I'll get it to yeah. you pretty soon. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah. So I thought that he did fair by me. I presume that preceded another question. I'll let you continue. Well, I, I read the book as well, and but I was disappointed in a number of. Uh, I don't think he did. You know, uh, there were several things that I was kind of disappointed in. Uh, I thought he treated you. Pretty neutrally, um, I, I, I was disappointed uh, with the chapter where he, he took uh, Jared Taylor and just the all right in general. Um, they, they, there were several things that he just avoided that you n- know that he knows about, but it, it would um, probably diminish, um, uh, you know, he, you know his points and stuff. So uh, overall, I was really disappointed with the book well given 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 what we know about michael malice you had to assume that this was not going to be a book in favor of anti-semitism right because jewish so like he's not he's not going to write a book where he's like the alt-right is absolutely correct let's get rid of jewish people or something right he's not going to do that yeah of course but like even even his treatment of jared taylor though was i I thought um wasn't good wasn't fair 
and, and, and uh, you know, is biased. That's interesting to me. I mean, I, I actually, and I haven't read this since the day it came out, so I don't, I, I think I got it right before it came out, actually, but, like, he, my recollection of it, I, I, I had assumed that your complaint about Jared Taylor was that he was giving Jared Taylor too much credit in the book, which seemed a peculiar ethnic interest that he might have, right? So, like, Jared Taylor, for, for people who are not familiar, is um, is a, is a, shall we say, an advocate of white interests who, who, doesn't, who doesn't outwardly take a great deal of hostility towards Ashkenazi Jews. And, and so um, Michael Malice being, I, I believe he's actually a Jewish person of, I believe he's actually of Ukrainian ancestry, maybe Russian. I, I, maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's my recollection of it. And so, you know, it, it it seemed to me that he might actually be giving Jared Taylor too much of a say in what was going on in the alt-right as, as sort of an interest in not advancing the anti-Semitic point of view, because, you know, Michael Malice is a Jewish guy who lives in New York City, and is and is certainly capable of and, and a libertarian at that. So, like, you know, he, he's certainly capable of understanding, like, the negative impacts of third world immigration, say. And I think that he's actually sympathetic to that point of view because the things that he values are are not aided by third world immigration. And so he probably actually is, you know, I think, sympathetic to limiting that pretty severely, though, you know, he has he has he has a his. I would say that he likely has an evolutionary psychology that is predisposed towards allowing some degree of immigration, say. And, but he doesn't want to have his society turn into, you know, he sees what happens to New York City, he doesn't want it to happen to the whole world, right? And so I, that was my impression of it. And you, I, you, think that he, you think that he did not, you think that he didn't treat Jared Taylor fairly? Yeah, and I, I, I'm skeptical of. Uh, it, it's been a while since I've read it, but I, I don't seem to think that, um, like race realism and stuff. Yeah, I've got to. I've got to believe that um, he is aware that there are differences in race. But in that book, I, I think he presents presents it as like, um, you know, that they were were all the same. You know, I, I could be wrong. It's been a while since I read it, but no, I, I don't think he he uh, is honest about that stuff. I I don't think that I don't think that the book necessarily took aim at that question. Is not my recollection of it, right? I, and I haven't read it in a long time either. And and it's I'll expose my bias that since I liked the guy and since I felt like he did not go out of his way to demean me. I'm predisposed towards thinking the best of him, probably, and so that's there's there's a distinct possibility I'm getting it wrong, but you know my recollection of it is that, you know, it, it didn't seem to me that he that he tried to take a position on, you know, universal human equality either way. I think that he described our the alt right's view of equality as a thinly veiled fundamentalist religion. And he said, well, that's the view that they hold. And it didn't seem to me that his goal was necessarily to dispute that. Um, he didn't he wasn't argumentative with me. He, I don't think that he was argumentative with Taylor and the other chapters sort of escaped me off the top of my head. But yeah, I, I, um, I, I don't think he was argumentative with Taylor. I just I don't think he laid out Jared Taylor's um, 
I, I don't know. It's hard, it's hard for me to articulate what I'm, I'm trying to say. I think he's Weasley, and I think he knows more than what he's letting on in that book. And I, he and does. I think he's intellectually dishonest. Oh, well, well I'll, I'll say that I don't think that those two things are necessarily the same category of issue, right? So, like, he definitely yeah. knows more than he lets on in that book because he does not want to publish a book that says, I agree with the alt-right on X, Y, and Z, right? Like, he's definitely yeah. not doing that. But I can tell you that when, like, like the recording of our interview, you'll get it. and You'll, you'll hear him. Like, the, the purpose of it, obviously, was not to debate me. So, you know, the fact that he does not yeah. dispute what I say is not to be interpreted as his agreement. But right. I, I think that, I think that, the the ideas that I discuss are intuitive and they're 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 I would go so far as to say obvious to a a person of some intellect right you I I think I it, to my recollection I probably broke it down as simply as you know look if you you know dogs have breeds and if you breed a certain type of dog you get a certain type of thing and the idea that human beings are not subject to that law of nature is preposterous. Michael Malice is perfectly capable of understanding that and probably doesn't need me to explain it, frankly, right? So he understands that, and if he does not espouse it in the book, I don't think that it's an intellectually dishonest for thing for him to not express his own view when he's when he's purports to be an outside observer taking a look at a thing, say. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I'll get you. I'll get you that recording after the show today. I, I, and it's and it's actually. I can tell you right now. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's a thing worth listening to. Yeah, I, I, I will. And uh, hey, thanks. I'll let somebody else uh, uh, jump in. Very good. Thank you, buddy. Who else? Anybody else? Anybody else? Somebody else will probably have something. If not, I can read news. But uh, if one of you is trying to figure out your microphone or something, then I will. Uh, I'll wait for you to figure it out. It has been fortunate that. Uh, yeah, let's see. Let me go read through the chat real quick. Um, I don't want to read that. Who just unmuted? Go ahead. Oh, Mr. Soprano, what's up? Oh, Mr. Soprano, still figuring hello? it out. Yes, hello. Oh, hey, there you go. Okay, that's weird. All right. Yeah, uh, I'm just thinking, you know, we have like, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, like we have about like 10 guys here, you know, I'm just wondering if maybe, you know, once uh, a Wednesday, you know, when we do this show, I think maybe it would be fun if we could almost kind of pick a comment section somewhere. And I mean, 10 people, we could basically just dominate a comment section. Or, uh, you know, a tweet or something. I feel like that'd be a fun thing to do in these chats. You know, we're all sitting at our computers anyways, right? Like, how about we, you know, maybe once a week find an issue that pertains to us or find something that needs to get spammed. And I mean, we could all just sit here and have some fun with it. Maybe have a prize for the best comment or something like that next week follow up. I mean, there's so many things I think we could do. I think that that's a worthwhile thing to do. I, I think that um, whether or not it would be the... Whether or not it would be this chat, whether or not it would displace this session, I, I, I'd say is another question. But it, it is a thing worth doing. I've hesitated to attempt to organize this on my own because um, I don't there. I kind of don't want to be perceived as having done it, say, or I have I have a head. I have a hesitancy at the at receiving that perception. It would be the accurate way for me to frame it. But. You know, there's a part of me that like wants to tell people like, yeah, go out and, you know, 
I I have mentioned, for example, I go and comment on everything Tucker Carlson does and say, go talk to Chris Cantwell, right? Um, and so I think that uh, uh, whatever the case may be, but, you know, part of the problem is that, like, all the news sites like don't have comment sections anymore, right? Like, the only thing that you could do is, you know, go and do it on Twitter, I guess, is kind of like where the their conversation takes place. To Facebook, I would say, makes it more difficult to do. I, I don't know. I haven't really tried... Like, I'll, I'll just go, I actually have a Facebook account right now, <clears throat> but I haven't even, I did, I have not made a single post. The The only purpose of it is I, I need it for website related things. Like, like face, you have to, like, for certain functions, you need, fa- you need to connect a Facebook account and associate it with your website or whatever. Other than that, I don't use Facebook at all. Like, I, I just created another Twitter account, by the way, if anybody doesn't know, it's Talk Radio Deity, D-E-I. Ty, because um, talk radio God got banned, and so now I'm I've joined this entirely new platform called X because you know Twitter is no longer Twitter it's X now and so I've never been banned from X and so I'm talk radio deity on Twitter um, and I would think that I think that so so what I here's I've I've thought about this before and my barrier has always been the trust level okay that like I would love to organize you know, comment storms, and I've always hesitated to do it because uh, I'm always operating under the assumption that even behind this paywall, there are hostels, right? Somebody would easily pay me $10 a month for the purpose of causing me trouble, right? And so I've, I've hesitated to do it, and I'm always trying to, well, I shouldn't say I'm always trying to do it. It's not my highest priority, but I think about from time to time, like, how to how to address the, you know, how can I organize things without telling the enemy and i've i've found that a cognitively challenging thing to do but i you know what you're saying is not so controversial right if if i were to say hey let's all go and you know comment on this twitter thread you know i kind of functionally do that anyway when i retweet things you know then there's a bunch of comments on it right um i'm not telling people to go comment on it but it it does you know sort of tend to ensue that way and so it's not it's not it's not it's not a totally disreputable thing to do. And so um, maybe uh, maybe I should get over myself and just do it. Yeah, I mean, I understand there's probably some legal ramifications like, you know, citing Anglin and that whole situation with, uh, you know, the his troll storm that he got you know persecuted for or whatnot. But, uh, yeah, I definitely think it's something to consider. I don't really think that there's much risk of being discovered at directing it aside from what I just described, you know, with the loss lawfare kind of thing. Cause I mean, I feel like, you know, I was thinking of starting like, you know, even just like a telegram chat or maybe even like a gamer group where you would go in there and like, you know, go in a, you know, group chats or go into places and kind of, you know, shill for things. And, uh, I, I just thought it'd be fun to like make specific targets, specific threads, you know, th- you know, the next posts that come out of, you know, AOC, you know, this is some, you know, this is the talking point or something like that, or, you know, just thinking out loud. No, I think your, your, your idea is a meritorious one. Um, you know, interestingly, you know, this is, I, I shouldn't, I don't even know if I should disclose it, but I will anyway. Like this is kind of what I actually liked about the bowl patrol is like, Whenever they like when I what what ingratiated them to me was if people, you know, pissed me off, they would have a bunch of like lunatics in their comment section. Right. And these guys would, you know, make dozens of fake social media accounts and they would make themselves appear much larger than they were. And, you know, there was a period of time when I 
shall we say, found that useful. Um, <laughs> uh, and so I, I, I know the power of the thing that you're describing, <clears throat> and um, I will certainly put more thought into it. It's something that's definitely worth doing, and I've been too hesitant to do it for... Uh, it's not that I'm. It's not that I'm afraid of like. It, I'm not. I'm not afraid of material consequences of it. Say, but like, you know, the perception that a narrative is constructed with too much care can be destructive to the narrative, right? And so I've. I've been trying. I've been overthinking of it. Thinking of you know. Speaking of you know, intelligence not necessarily being the 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 end all be all of you know human success. I overthink things sometimes, right? And I think that's what I'm doing here is that I'm saying like, oh, well, how do I figure out how to create this, this, how do I figure out how to create this perception without being seen as having created the perception? And it's not that I'm afraid of, you know, being sued or something like that necessarily. It's, it's that I don't want them to see me as having created the perception because that's damaging to the perception. And running around with that circle in my head has has proven unproductive, and uh, yeah, I should probably just probably just do it. <laughs> I think this is one of the one of the reasons it's important to be smart when it's actually executed. You know, right? There's a difference between you know making you know just ridiculous kind of troll posts versus making you know thoughtful posts where you know one would argue that they can't differentiate who's a troll or who's actually you know being sent by you and then on the other hand it's also marketing right like let's say you know this is successful in some regards and you know some you know one of your political adversaries at like politico or something you know writes about it i feel like you know if anything it's just more marketing uh on you know, in the long term, I guess. And, you know, as long as there's some sort of merits with what we're doing and we're being, uh, you know, not getting our comments banned for, you know, some blatant terms of servicing, I think there's a lot that can be done. You know, someone posted in the, uh, you know, Matt said, you know, Facebook isn't so bad. And that's actually true. You know, I, I've had the same Facebook account for years. And, uh, you know, there's been times where I couldn't use it for 30 days, but I feel like there is still a lot of uh, things to be done on these social media platforms. And I'm really thrilled. You know, I just gave you a follow that to see you're back on Twitter because, you know, it sounds like the direction Musk is taking is going to be, you know, huge to miss out on that. So I think it's smart to kind of uh, take advantage of all the video things and monetization things. I mean, you're seeing all these posts with people making big money for replying to tweets. So, like, you know, that could be you and or that could be us, you know, if you think about it. And, uh I think there's huge opportunities, even with the ads. You know, I, I have a real, uh, I know someone that, you know, is spending about uh, like 20 to 50 grand a day on Facebook ads, but he knows when he spends that amount, it's going to translate, you know, through a click funnel to X amount of revenue. And he has this down to a science where all he does for a living is get points on his credit cards that he has ridiculous, you know, limits on and, you know, has this arbitrage thing going. And I think that, you know, at the very least, you know, we could find, you know, products that maybe are somewhat even related, just even like shirts, right? I mean, I still feel like there's such a market for political shirts if they're smartly implemented. We can make click funnels and use all these different things to promote you, promote the shirts. I mean, uh, I feel like we could use a lot of these platforms a lot smarter than just trolling too. I, I agree with you that like, you know, my, well, my, my aversion to using Facebook myself is not that, um, the, not that I want to say things on Facebook, which would get a person banned from Facebook. It's that Christopher Cantwell is not allowed to use Facebook, right? Like I'm on a list of people who's permanently banned from the platform. And so like the, the fact that like they actually I created this account and then I was notified that the account was terminated, even though I had posted absolutely nothing. 
and they were like, you know, prove you are who you say you are. And I had to like send them ID and I was like, yeah, that's going to be the end of that. And then they, they overturned the decision, interestingly enough. And so like I, my, I have a Facebook account because I, there's technical reasons that I need it. And so like, I, I, I don't know how Facebook is about like verification. I don't know what it's, I don't know what's involved in creating a face a fake Facebook account in 2023. Say, I just I actually literally don't know what it is. Um, I imagine it's possible to do, uh, especially if you have a you know a burner cell phone or whatever. Uh, I don't imagine it's actually all that difficult to do. But I just I haven't bothered to inform myself. You know, Twitter is Twitter doesn't require you to use your real name, right? Twitter, Elon Musk is going out and saying we will protect anonymity and yada yada yada. It's like, well. You know, how are you going to ban an individual from your platform if you allow anonymity? What you're saying is that a person is not allowed to enjoy their reputation on your platform anymore. You're not actually saying you're not actually saying that they can't use it. And so, you know, um, it, those are categorically different things. But, yeah, like Facebook ads is my understanding is they are like they're the they're the top notch. Like what you pay for on Facebook, it's my understanding your maximum return on investment is actually from Facebook ads. And so one of the things that does cross my mind is like at some point um, it, it would be in my best interest, say, to to take on a partner or have somebody working for the company who is able to purchase Facebook ads. Right. And to use that in order to benefit from that um, from from that from that advertising channel. Um, and so. Uh, uh, I have not used it myself, but it is definitely something that I have in my head for, for future use. And I just, I'm exceedingly cautious with it. Cause I'm, I'm like, and I mean, when I say exceedingly, I'm acknowledging a, a you know, perhaps a character flaw here is that I'm being too cautious. I, I mean it literally that I'm being exceedingly cautious because, you know, the, the thing about being permanently banned from a platform has really burned me bad, right? Like, I waited months to get back on Twitter because I didn't want to be banned for ban evasion, right? And then I was on there, and I was like, oh, you know, I can say whatever I want here. And I found out, you know, I found out the hard way that I can't. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I guess I'm just going to have to create new, <laughs> create new Twitter accounts because I'm not going to let you do this to me this time. Um, and if they don't make you use your real name and they're not going to ask you for a driver's license every time, then, you know, like Facebook did. Like Facebook was like, send me your government ID when I had never posted anything. And I was like, OK, here's my you know, here's my passport, you know. And uh, and so they they, uh, you know, there's a thing. So I, I, I agree with you that this is something that needs to be done. And uh, I will definitely think more about it. Um, anybody, um, anybody else want to chime in? Um, Plock something or other says, um, uh, I missed the comment section of news articles. And yeah, like that, you know, it used to be that, you know, you could go on a news site and you create, you know, an account on their site or 200 accounts and you could bombard the comment section of the news sites and they don't do that anymore. I see, uh, Mr. Thompson has, uh, unmuted himself. What's going on? Yeah, I just wonder, why do you think Facebook allowed you back on if they had you banned and uh, you had to produce your ID? They know it's you. So I'm not I'm not 100 uh, percent. You know, I'm not involved in their deliberations, say. But I also know that, like, 
Um, what I do know is that the ID that I sent them is not the ID that I verified the band account with, say. I, I sent them a New Hampshire driver's license, you know, or I probably sent them a New York driver's license, come to think about it, when I verified my Facebook account and got a blue check mark, right? Or no, I got, it was probably my New Hampshire driver's license. But my New Hampshire driver's license, um, my New Hampshire driver's license expired while I did not have internet access. So I sent them a federal ID document and I now live in a different city and stuff. And so it's entirely possible that they're like, we actually don't know for certain that this is the Christopher Cantwell who's banned. So we're not going to ban him. And the ID that I sent them is like, it's, it's, it's not ideal for facial recognition. Like I've actually had problems trying to verify my identity on like cryptocurrency exchanges and stuff that, you know, make you take the, you know, turn your head or whatever with your camera because I have the uh, the passport ID card. If any of you have this, you know what I'm talking about. It's like a it's like a it's like a it's like a hologram of you, you know, behind the hologram of the thing. It's it's not a very good thing for facial recognition, and so that might be that might be a part of the exercise. I, I, but I I don't know. Obviously, I I didn't post it anything right, and so like I don't even know what it was that caused them to intervene on my account. I think the last the only thing that I did was like. <laughs> I play the dumb Pokemon Go thing, right? And I and I and I started to have this anxiety that my my Christopher.cantwell at gmail.com account is disabled in a number of ways. You know, I was banned from YouTube, obviously. And then I think that because of the way I was I, I think I they, they banned me from making app reviews on the Google Play Store as well, and they banned me from Google Pay and like all this stuff like I've been fighting with them about they owe me a hundred dollars still. And so, like, I'm like, I have to get away from this, this, this Gmail account because it's disabled in like a dozen different ways. But my whole life is tied up in it, not the least of which is my Pokemon Go game. And I was like, well, you know, maybe if I connect my Facebook account to it. And it was like two days after I connected my Pokemon Go game to my Facebook account that I got this notification that I was, you know, banned from Facebook. And I, they were like, you can appeal this this way. And I said, okay you know, here, you want to ban me for doing Pokemon Go? And apparently um, Pokemon Go was not something that gets you banned from Facebook in 2023. We'll see about 2024, maybe. <laughs> um, anybody else want to chime in? All right. Well, uh, if you desire to chime in, then by all means, go ahead and do so while I pull up uh, while I pull up some news here. Um, oh, you know what I'll do? This this is fun. So I mentioned this Frank Luntz posted this um, Twitter ad that he's well, he posted this thing on Twitter that he says was a was a Trump campaign ad. And I actually don't think that it was. But, you know. I didn't, again, I didn't even bother to verify. I'm like, yeah, well, this is something that Trump would probably do. And so let me go over here and I will share with, oh, I got to pop that out because it does the window, not the, hang on a second. I got to pop that out because it's in a tab group and not its own window. And so what I need to do is pull this up over here and bring this this way or, okay, here we go. And so, if I go back here and I say, um, 
I will share this window with you, which is uh, Frank Luntz on Twitter. Yes, we're going to share Frank Luntz on Twitter, and we're going to change this over here. Share screen with Cam. Boom. Okay. So this is the uh, this is the advertiser I was talking about. I will uh, max the screen out and I will play it. State and I wanted to destroy America. I would rig the election with a puppet candidate, one that was so compromised that they would never say a word about it. I would create a false flag that allows for mail-in ballots. I would be in charge of the ballot counting machines. I would create a false flag to blame all who question the results of the election. If I was the deep state, I would prosecute anyone that went against me. I would sue and prosecute anyone that spoke up about the fraudulent election. I would use my powers to shut down all your internet businesses and bankrupt you. If I was the deep state, I would make everyone an example why you should never question a Democrat ever winning an election. I would imprison my foes. I would use my corrupt DAs and blackmailed judges to destroy you. I would make sure all crimes I ever committed never happened. I would prosecute my biggest competition. I would make sure they could never run for office ever again. If I was the deep state, I would convince everyone that Ukraine Nazis were good and women are men. If I was the deep state, I would own every politician that mattered. If I was the deep state, I would push my pedophilia ambitions on you. If I was the deep state, you'd question your sexual identity but not the medical establishment. If I was the deep state, you would fear to ever resist me. If I was the deep state, you would wish I was really the devil. If I was the deep state, I would say mission accomplished. So, Frank Luntz posted this as if, like, this was a Donald Trump campaign ad. And, like, I don't I don't actually think, yeah, Dilly Meme Team published this. It's not actually from the Trump campaign. And so, you know, this is the most alarming political ad I've seen. Well, he doesn't. He doesn't explicitly say it's the... All right. So, actually, this perception is born of what... <laughs> that's kind of funny. So, this is one of the things about Revolver News that's sort of not always great, let's say, uh, that that they're not careful with their headlines. And so, um, if I go over... Let me go back to that window, as a matter of fact. What Revolver had this as is that this campaign ad is scaring frank luntz that's what revolver said yeah let me put i'll share the screen with you again hang on a second and so i bring that back revolver news share and share screen with cam and so yeah so revolver news has this at the top of the thing this trump ad put the fear of god into frank luntz well, as a matter of fact, that's that's not what happened. Revolver News is not particularly careful with their headlines, and so I found that kind of amusing. But uh, that is not fundamentally what happened, actually. And so I don't think that Donald Trump is going out of his way to distance himself from this. I probably would have heard about that. And that adver- that meme is, uh, I don't know how many views it's seen outside of Frank Luntz, but I could see it getting around, like, because it actually does, I would say, encapsulate, um, it, it does a good job of 
accurately describing the views of a large number of people. And even in even for those people who it does not accurately reflect their views, it is close enough to their views that it might it might influence their views more in the direction of the advertisement, right? Or in the direction of the meme. That's kind of the idea of memes, by the way, right? To to sort of like grab the edge of the Overton window and move it a little bit more in your direction. And so I can understand why that makes Frank Luntz very uncomfortable. And, you know, I am not without any sympathy for uh, for Mr. Luntz's fear because, you know, if people believe literally that, you know, there's some kind of like pedophile, you know, cabal running the government, stealing the elections and, you know, abusing the legal system. Well, you know, there's there's inferences that people can draw from that that lead to consequences that even I'm not, you know, such a huge fan of, right? I, I don't know that I'm entirely, um, I don't know that I'm entirely comfortable with the uh, logical conclusions that one would reach as a consequence of that worldview, even though I am largely subscribed to it. I think the election was stolen. I, I think that Joe Biden's a criminal. I think that he was put there by people smarter than him who understand what's going on better than he does. And I definitely think that there's way too many pedophiles in the government. I mean, you keep on seeing it happen, right? And so, you know, you see, and as, by the way, like, you know, when I didn't have internet access, you know, in the federal prison system, you know, there's there's no shortage of pedophiles, say. And it's conspicuous how short their sentences are. You know, I mentioned that guy in, in the opening monologue that, you know, he's likely to do five years. Well, you know, I have a I, I don't know that everybody who gets caught of a picture with a picture of a teenager needs to spend the rest of their life in prison, say. But like if you're somebody who is like, you know what, my idea of a masturbatory fantasy is like forcibly penetrating an infinite infant, then, you know, then you're probably somebody who shouldn't be out in civilization. You know, it's not just it's not the it's not the. It's not the statutory violation that I'm necessarily concerned about. It's that you're the type of person who finds that stuff attractive and we have to you're a danger to everybody, you know. And so but for some reason the federal government doesn't seem to have that big of a problem with it. They're like, Yeah, well, you know, we have to make sure that we give the impression that we're not okay with that, so you're gonna do five years and then, you know, and then we'll hire you as a public school teacher. I don't know if that's actually gonna be the case, the public school teacher part, but they don't seem particularly anxious to put that guy away for the rest of his life, and I would call that conspicuous. And so, the idea that there's a bunch of pedophiles running the government, I would say, is is a is a plausible theory at least. Um, and so, but of course, if you believe that, you know, if you believe that as a literal thing, you know, I'm not going to say what conclusions one would necessarily infer from that, but uh, I would go so far as to say that one might draw inferences from that perception. That would lead to consequences not wholly desirable. <laughs> so, anybody, uh, anybody else want to chime in? We are approaching the end of the program, so if you would like to chime in, you should probably do that pretty soon. Thank you, Mr. Soprano. Thank you very much for your inputs tonight. Very valuable as usual. Um... And so I will, uh, I'm going to try to pull up one more news story. And if nobody wants to chime in by the time I'm done with that, then we will call it an evening. Um, I told you the story. Oh, here's a fun one. 
So the, apparently there's a big problem uh, going on. I'll, actually, I'll share this tab with you, too. Hang we'll do this. I'll pull that out here. Go back to you. Um, we'll share the screen. And we'll do um, this one. Okay, share that. And share the screen with the camera. Syphilis emergency looms in the U.S. as drugs run low. And so apparently syphilis is a big problem in America now. And, you know, who can imagine why that would be the case? A shortage of penicillin to treat a skyrocketing number of syphilis cases is so dire that U.S. health officials are debating the need to declare a public health emergency, according to people familiar with the matter. Major U.S. medical centers are rationing the recommended treatment for the deadly sexually transmitted disease because of a supply crunch. From Michigan to Missouri to Texas, some health care providers are prioritizing giving a key treatment, penicillin G benzathine, to pregnant patients and babies because the drug can pass through the placenta and also treat the fetus. And of course, you have to talk about pregnant patients because you wouldn't want to mention women in this context. Syphilis has been sickening more people over the last few years, but the latest surge in cases has been especially worrying to the federal government because it's affecting children and they don't want to get sick when they have sex with them. I don't know if that's actually the conclusion that they're going to reach at Bloomberg, but probably not. The Department of Health and Human Services is mobilizing a new federal task force to tackle the problem. And staff are discussing the possibility of declaring a public health emergency, which could give officials access to more funding to address the crisis, according to people familiar with the matter. This is a remarkable shortage, said Joseph Cherubi, an assistant professor at Washington University in St. Louis Medical School, who treats syphilis patients because of the need to conserve the drug for pregnant patients. Because, of course, pregnant patients, you know, who they could be anybody. Other people are getting less than ideal treatments for the infection. The government's efforts are being led by Assistant Secretary for Health, Admiral Rachel Levine. And, of course, if Rachel Levine is in charge of it, she's got to be very, very worried about those pregnant people, of course, because Rachel Levine doesn't say things like pregnant women. According to one of the people who asked not to be identified discussing private information, Levine has spent months recruiting experts to tackle syphilis crisis including officials at HHS, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and the Food and Drug Administration, which has been brought in to address the ongoing drug shortages. Levine and U.S. health officials at the CDC are weighing the benefits of the public health emergency declaration, such as the additional flexibility and money it would cost to give HHS one of the people's... uh, uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Such as the flexibility and money it would give HHS, according to one of the people familiar with the thing. They're also considering potential drawbacks. Some are wary pandemic-fatigued public may consider it an overreaction and ignore similar declarations in the future. Ultimately, HHS Secretary um, Javier Becerra has the power to make a declaration. The department is closely monitoring the alarming rise in cases of syphilis and will continue working to address this public health threat, an HHS spokesperson said. And of course, so like... You know, part of the thing that I find pretty amusing about this, I'm not going to read the whole story because you kind of get the idea, uh, is the big issue with syphilis, according to the federal government, is that they don't have the drugs to treat it. And I would say the big problem with syphilis is that people are getting infected with syphilis is kind of my perception of the of the problem. 
and they don't seem to think that that's a big issue at all. And it reminded me of sort of the monkey pox thing. We should do a monkey pox episode one of these days. I got to go pull up all the monkey pox stories. Me and uh, me and a couple of guys uh, in my uh, my neighborhood at the time that this thing broke out had endless amusement at the expense of monkeypox. Uh, schlong COVID, I think some people called it. And uh, that I found profoundly amusing because everybody was, like, dancing around the issue and trying to, like, act like it wasn't something that was spreading rapidly on Grinder. You know, they were like, well, it disproportionately affects the men who have sex with men community. Or they couldn't say men. They said... The uh, community of biological males that has sex with biological males, and then they had to dance around that because they didn't like to say biological males anymore because, you know, they don't want to talk about biology. And so we, we had a lot of fun watching uh, them dance around that subject. And uh, maybe I'll try to pull up a bunch of those stories and, and go over. You know, it's the, it's the absence of the thing that's amusing, and so I don't know that it's— I don't know that it's as fun to do in 2023 as it was when it was going on. And so, anybody want to chime in before uh, before I call it a night? Then, well, I will. Uh, I will then thank all of you for tuning in. Good speaking with all of you tonight. Thank you for those of you who did participate. Thank you to all of you for being uh, Surreal Politics subscribers. Those of you who are listening to this who are not Surreal Politics subscribers, you know you can. You can you can you can heal your conscience. Uh, you know, you're stealing from me is kind of what I'm saying. And you can get your conscience back in order. You could be a reputable person. All you do go over surrealpolitics.com slash join. You sign up for a membership, you'll become a member, and then you won't be a crook anymore. And that would be probably a good idea for your soul. And even if you don't believe that you have a soul, you know, your character is still impacted by your disreputable behavior, and you wouldn't want to do that. So you just go over and do that. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We do the, uh, we'll be back for the public show Monday. I'll be back for the Uncensored show on Friday. Oh, Friday, I'm also going to be doing White Rabbit Radio. I should probably tell you guys that. And then I'll be posting that on social media, Talk Radio Deity on Twitter, and uh, Real Chris Cantwell on Gab, and follow Chris on Telegram. My social media presence kind of scattered. I keep on getting banned, and I need to make up new names all the time. It's not perfect, but, you know, it's a good thing you guys are enthusiasts, otherwise I'd be completely screwed. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll see you soon.